miss the show no worries we've got you covered on point and on the podcast tonight an ontario judge notes these shutdowns are unfair and the policies seem to favor large business over small ignoring all the risks posed by the big stores the courts could soon see a rush of cases as businesses start to push back we will talk about that Meng Wazhu, you know she might get offered some kind of deal it might mean nothing for the two Michaels. We'll explain why. And the reservations, of course, many Canadians have about these vaccines being rushed to market, they're warranted. And I think we're right to ask a lot of questions. And that doesn't have to mean we're an anti-vaxxer. We will talk to somebody who is an expert in this area. Let's get talking. Getting through to you. That's the point you understand. There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. Canada has secured an agreement with Pfizer to begin early delivery of doses of their vaccine candidate. We are now contracted to receive up to 249,000 of our initial doses of Pfizer BioNTech's COVID 19 vaccine in the month of December. Pending Health Canada approval, the first shipment of doses is tracking for delivery next week. Shipments will continue to arrive into 2021 with millions of doses on the way. Good news or made to look like good news? That is my question. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, December 7th. Yeah, your seven chocolates in on your um, Advent calendar. And a whole lot of news today. It's been a very crazy kind of news day. It was just raining news on this Monday, which is not a bad thing if you're in talk radio. It's just extremely hard to keep up with. And of course, as soon as you hear what vaccines are coming all of a sudden, huh? That just takes over. That takes over everything. And so, yes, you've been hearing about this. You know, we're going to get vaccines now before the year's end. And then it's all the little fine print that starts to raise my eyebrows. It's not Botox. And um, on the surface, yeah, it's great news. It just feels a little too convenient, you know, uh, to happen so quickly because there's no question there has been pressure growing now on this government for weeks to get the vaccine details. Like, when is it coming? And so I, I think they had to get something into the arms of Canadians before the year end because the optics of having Canadians watch millions around the world getting a vaccine was never going to fly. So, you know, color me just a little bit skeptical that all of a sudden we've got an early batch, you know, because you'll recall for weeks we have been told that we wouldn't get delivery of vaccine before early January. I mean, Trudeau himself said it would be late spring. That was a couple of weeks ago. And then somehow over the weekend, uh, you know, someone pulled a, a rabbit out of the hat in the prime minister's office. And or as the prime minister admitted, and it kind of flew under the radar in that press conference this morning, an amendment was done to the original contract, which means we likely threw a few more billion to get something. Just give us anything. Just give us anything to put in the window, you know, because sure, it's good news. But something changed in the last couple of days because, again, we've been hearing that it's not coming to late uh, January. And then all of a sudden we get hit this. Shipments will continue to arrive into 2021 with millions of doses on the way. This will move us forward on our whole timeline of vaccine rollout 
and is a positive development in getting Canadians protected as soon as possible. So call it a sprinkle. We'll get a sprinkle. I said this would happen, I think I said last week. We'll probably get a few just to make it look like, hey, great news. Um, but the, the game is, I guess, Health Canada is supposed to approve the Pfizer vaccine next week, and then these vaccines will ship in, and then by the end of December, we could get up to 249,000, up to if all things go well. But then you got to start like doing the numbers. So you cut that number in half, and that would mean 125,000 Canadians could roll up their sleeve before January. And of course, and I don't have any issue with this. I have no issue at all with this. The first doses will go to the most vulnerable, healthcare sector workers, long-term care and frontline workers, and, and no one should have a problem with that. Um, but, you know, you, you look at the country. We've got 35 million people in this country, and so break down the numbers. If we keep getting this in dribs and drabs, then it's going to take months, months for us to get vaccinated. And Britain, Britain got 800,000 Pfizer doses. They ordered that. They were one of the first countries to order this vaccine. And so they're going to get 800,000 Pfizer doses. Like they're, they're starting probably any minute now to start the inoculation. And then they're expecting millions more before the year's end. And so is the United States. It says it'll have 120 million people vaccinated by end of January. And I don't know if maybe Donald Trump caught wind of this announcement because late this afternoon, he uh, stated that tomorrow he will sign an executive order calling for an American first delivery on these vaccines, making clear that America will get doses first. And America bought this before us. They didn't buy a second installment of Pfizer at the end of summer, but they bought initial hundreds of millions of doses in an earlier time frame than we did. So maybe this will become the fly in, uh, in Trudeau's vaccine ointment, but we will see what it means tomorrow because at the end of the day, money talks. And Pfizer's not going to piss off the United States. But interestingly, David Aiken, who's great with numbers, he broke them down. And so in Ontario, we learned today that we have uh, 850,000 healthcare workers. That's a lot. We've got 6,000 hospitals, long-term care, and retirement homes. And provinces get doses based on per capita needs. So we're going to get about 80,000 vaccines, cut it in half. Ontario will get 40,000 vaccines. But then you look across the country, there are 1.7 million over the age of 80. And to vaccinate every Canadian over 70, we're going to need nine and a half million doses to vaccinate four and a half million Canadians. And so you put the numbers into context. We're nowhere near that. Our first shipments of a very small number of doses could arrive as early as next week. But we're still very far, and i got to repeat that, very far from having the millions of vaccines we need for mass immunization. Phase one will take us two to three months, depending on the arrival of those vaccines. We won't be able to do everyone each day or on the first day, so people are going to have to be patient that their turn will come in that phase one category. Phase two Somewhere about 1st April onwards, in my view, is going to take six to nine months, perhaps a little bit longer, and that's when the bulk of the vaccines will start to arrive, other than Pfizer, and other than perhaps just Pfizer and Moderna. All right, so there you go. That was General Hillier. So I, I don't know if maybe he wasn't supposed to say that, but the bulk of this 
the real delivery on vaccines is months away, which is going to take us into 2022 before we get this vaccine. And it's not me. I'm not being a party pooper. I'm not in a rush to get this vaccine so I can have it. I just, until we get it, we cannot open up our economies. You know, we can't escape from this thing. We can't, you know, we can't go visit our loved ones dying alone in long-term care. It means businesses stay shut down. And so until this vaccine comes in, we are going to see some real incredible hurt and suffering. And I and on the on the flip side, I totally get it because I hear from you all the time. I won't touch a vaccine. I get it. I get it. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism about the speed of the development of this. And this is this is not just anti-vaxxers who are unsure. And I do think that Canadians shouldn't be judged for questioning it. I mean, of course we should. This is a brand new technology. It's been done at warp speed. I mean, I'm going to roll up my sleeve because I'm so sick of this thing. I'm so sick of this thing. Um, and, and I'm just sick of the destruction it's causing. I mean, it has really, I mean, there's just a lot of hurt out there. And, you know, over the weekend, I don't know if you saw this, I think um, uh, Mr. Sherman, Peter Sherman was chatting about this in the show. He, he talked about the mayor's tweet. I mean, it didn't just fall fat, flat. It, it was so tone deaf. He said, uh, stay home. That's it. That's the tweet. And I think someone might have been trying to get cute in his office. I, I don't know if he put it out. You know, but it was so tone deaf because it comes the day after A that he told everyone, go buy local, shop at St. Lawrence Market, which is reopening. And and so I'm like, wait, what is that? Are we supposed to stay home or are we supposed to go to St. Lawrence Market? What do we do? Pick a lane. The reality is, though, a lot of people can't stay home. A lot of people, most people have no choice but to go to an office, go to work. You know, they don't, some people don't even have a home. And so I think... Those in charge have to realize staying at home is a luxury awarded to a very few of us. You know, we're not in this together. That talking point died in the first wave. And so I thought that I thought that tweet was real tone deaf, you know, just stay home. Yeah, OK, I'll just sit around all day and watch TV and wait for this thing to end. It's, it's not realistic for for most people, certainly not in the private sector. And uh, we'll talk about this at eight because there's a very interesting case that just went through the courts and um, it involves a Canadian appliance business and they're going to lose $27 million, $27 million in sales during this, sh- this shutdown. And so they went to court and tried to get an emergency injection. They didn't win it, but I thought the comments that the judge said were extremely I- interesting. Justice Myers was his name and um, he, he made it quite clear the unfairness small stores are facing while the big stores remain open. And really question this policy of how that keeps people safe. So we'll talk about that at eight, because I think you're going to see a lot more businesses pushing back. But, you know, $27 million in the most important time to shop is nothing to sneeze at. Shutdowns are unfair. I've been saying that for a while, but that is not the case with me now. Uh, This is actually an Ontario judge saying this. It's a pretty interesting case that came under my nose involving a Canadian business that's challenging these lockdown measures. And the business is Canadian Appliance Source LP. And this is a chain of stores that had sought an emergency injunction against these pu- uh, public health orders. And it was on the grounds that it's going to lose millions for Christmas sales. We're talking like 27 million to be exact. And an injunction if they had won, would have allowed them to operate until the matter can be taken to court at a later date. 
And sadly, uh, when I read this uh, ruling, the business didn't win. But I thought the judge overseeing the matter said some pretty interesting things. His name, Justice Myers. And he acknowledged, you know, small businesses uh, can't afford further losses and notes the apparent unfairness of small stores closing while big stores remain open. And he agrees that, you know, it's a serious issue that should be tried and that the definition of a hardware store is also an issue. And he also says this case involves public interest and not just the private concerns of this one business, but more to the government policy that seems to favor small business or larger businesses at the expense of smaller businesses. Meanwhile, the risks going into these bigger businesses is worse, or at least just as bad. I want to bring Christine Van Gein into this conversation, litigation director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And I sent this case over to Christine, so I'm glad you can join me. Because um, I was wondering, you know, is this a case you're familiar with? And it's not in a, a case that you actually dealt with, but it certainly, I think, speaks to what has been said very openly, um, you know, over the growing couple of weeks that there is a real unfairness. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's not a case that I was familiar with until this morning, and that's because. Uh, the application was only started on December 2nd. So it's moved at sort of warp speed here. So mm -hmm. I, I'll add that it's not over. The, um, the, dis the endorsement that came out on Friday relates to um, interim relief. So they had asked for some interim relief to allow the stores to continue to operate um, over the weekend, where they said they would lose half a million dollars in sales over mm -hmm. the weekend if they weren't open. Um, they did lose that, but tomorrow there is an uh, injunction. The injunction is being heard tomorrow by Zoom. Now, the test for an injunction is similar to the test for interim relief. Um, what the, the judge is going to look at is if there's a serious issue to be tried, if there's irreparable harm, and uh, the balance. What the balance of convenience is. So. We don't know if it will come down the same way tomorrow, um, but the test is quite quite similar. Um, it's very interesting, though, some of the observations that the judge made. For example, he specifically said, everyone sees the apparent unfairness of small stores closing while big box stores remain open. And, right. you know, the, the government is going to be required to produce some argument about why this is a, uh, a on the balance of convenience, that policy makes sense. Certainly, yeah. And certainly with cases still going up, even though small businesses are shut down. So they've got a, a few extra little uh, kind of uh, data points that they can enter. Um, and look, I, I sent it to you and I said, you know, like, are there no charter rights here being violated? Because don't we have the right to earn a living in this country? And sadly, sadly, that's not one of the charter rights. Yeah, I mean, economic interests are not protected under the Charter. It's something that was considered when, when we first enacted the Charter, and it was dated. And ultimately, it was decided that property rights were not going to be enshrined in our Constitution. Um, there is a longstanding common law right to run a business, but... As, as I'm sure all your listeners know, running a business is already subject to all kinds of, of regulation and restrictions. There's all kinds of limits that are imposed on that. Um, this is this is a really severe situation where businesses are essentially, um, I mean, people can't can't run their businesses right now. But it, it's a it's a difficult constitutional argument to make. I think that you could maybe make some type of 
novel arguments related to maybe art galleries or um, things with a real expressive interest, but just purely mm-hmm. commercially. No, I don't. I, I think that you 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 don't really have a charter right at play there. Yeah, unfortunately, we're having a bit of a digitization, so I'm not sure if uh, if you're if you're in an elevator, but um, it's just digitizing a little bit. Um, but with your organization, it's interesting because you just a few days ago actually launched a search. You're looking for plaintiffs that are interested in challenging these measures across Canada, and then the, the campaign is called "No Arbitrary Lockdowns." Would a business like what we're talking about be what you're looking for? That kind of like we're losing our fo- like. What are you looking for? So what we're looking for is not just businesses, because as I've said, I think the charter right on businesses is a difficult one to make, but we're looking to tell the stories of businesses that have been hurt by these lockdowns, um, the stories of people who, for example, maybe have had their right to worship in, infringed right, or right. their right to express themselves or protest. These are all parts of the lockdown that we're living through right now that in, engage our most fundamental freedoms and freedoms that should be as little as possible. And they're really being intruded upon in ways that the government hasn't fully rationalized to the public. I think a lot of people see problems, myself included, with some arbitrariness and lack of evidence that the government the government's presenting. It's the onus is on the government to make the case that these just these lockdowns are justified. Right. And, and I think most Canadians in the first wave, you know, we're willing to roll over with these emergency measure act and, and it's like, okay, okay, don't roll too quickly because once you've rolled over, I mean, these things start to slip away really, really quickly once you've allowed them to disappear. But now you're starting to get some pushback. And it's unfortunate that these businesses, other than begging the government to to somehow let them operate, that's all they've got, really. I mean, I don't know down the road if there'll be some kind of class action suit. I don't know because... I think the emergency powers seem to give the government uh, a pass on, on, you know, going uh, into areas they really shouldn't be going. Yeah, and certainly what the judge in this decision said was that there is irreparable harm that's going to happen to this business that won't be able to operate at Christmas, one of its busiest seasons. And it said in the absence of a mechanism for this business to seek compensation from the government, these these losses will be irreparable. And and the government is not providing any information about how these businesses can make themselves whole. The reality is that they probably won't be able to. And um, these businesses may have a a civil claim to file against the government if ultimately these lockdown measures are found to have been unnecessary. Or hell, just go to the Human Rights Tribunal. I mean, it's a lower bar. And I mean, it's going to take a collective of of, of business, I think, coming forward in, in some kind of class action uh, to, to go up against Goliath. Yeah, I certainly think that, that we will see more litigation as this um, lockdown continues. But right now, we're looking for people who are interested in telling their stories and mm-hmm. people who have had their fundamental rights impacted by this. So if, if any of your listeners have a story to tell um, or are interested in becoming a plaintiff in, in an action related to some of the fundamental rights like freedom of expression or religion, um, please visit our website, www.theccf.ca, and you can fill in our, um, our no arbitrary lockdowns form that, that tells your story. I know a lot of people want to just have someone listen and care about what the government has done to them. And I, I want to hear those stories.
Yeah, I think in the fallout of this thing, as you probably already know and are preparing for, there's going to be so much collateral damage and certainly kind of case studies out of this. And, um, you know, it's going to take a long way to work its way through uh, the courts, but no no question it's coming. Yeah, and, and the number of people, I'm, I, I have to take a break reading the stories that have been sent in, the number of people who are dealing with seriously dark yeah. thoughts. Yeah, is yeah, it's not it's not just the guy that doesn't want to wear a mask. We're talking yeah, yeah, some of the cases of not being able to see your parents as it's they lay dying. Their, it's their lives ruined. People are having their lives ruined, and the government needs to provide us with a rationale for some of these arbitrary measures. I mean, some health measures make sense, but but in some cases, you know, closing the little bookstore at the end of my street, why, why? Yeah, yeah. Some of these ca- and some of these cases that you're talking to are, are just downright cruel. Um, all right. Thanks a lot, Christine. It's it's the ccf.ca, correct? That's right. The ccf.ca. All righty. Good stuff. All right. Thank you very much. We'll talk again. Thanks for thanks again. Bye. That is uh, Christine Van Gein. So it is called No Arbitrary Lockdown if you think you have a, sh- a story to share. And I've had a friend on this show who was not allowed to see her father in his dying moments. Why? Because he was in a different province. And those aren't things. And I, there are a number of those stories. And that that is that is a cruelty that you do not come back from. Yeah, you know, not seeing your loved one as they're laying dying. I mean, it's it's not just injustice. It's just downright cruel. All right, great to have you here on what has been a very busy Monday. And uh, Meng Wanzhou back in a Vancouver court today. Her lawyers uh, continue fighting her extradition to the United States. And this is all going on as these rumors swirl around the possibility of a deal to end this ordeal with a deferred prosecution that seems to possibly be in the offering behind the scenes. And right now, all we have are rumors. And if a deal is offered, we're just assuming that China is going to willingly admit wrongdoing which is a stretch. But even if a deal is offered, there's a very real possibly possibility that it will not help the two Michaels because the U.S. Justice Department isn't at all obligated or likely even bringing this into the equation. And as Terry Glavin uh, rightfully points out in a great read in McLean's, China nor the U.S. give two figs about our feelings. Christian Luprecht is a professor at the Military College of Canada and Queen's University, also a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Good to have you, uh, Professor. And the bottom line is, I think a lot of people are very excited about the possibility that the two Michaels will come out of this somehow as part of the deal. But the prime minister is not saying anything. Uh, Christian Freeland was asked over the weekend, you know, her thoughts on this. And it's very clear they're not going to say a word. Nobody's more excited about this than the folks in the prime minister's office, I would think, because this is a serious liability going into the next election. I mean, the whole China file the government is vulnerable on. Uh, so I suspect that the people at the forefront uh, of, of trying to seal a deal here uh, would be indeed the prime minister's office. We just need to make sure that whatever uh, whatever deal uh, ends up being sealed is a deal that is in the interest of Canada, uh, perhaps the interest of the government of the day or not, but that is also compliant with the rule of law and our broader geostrategic interests in terms of reigning in Chinese broad behavior without then getting caught in the middle uh, between two bulldozers of China and the United States, uh, mm-hmm. which, as you rightly pointed out, don't uh, much care about us being uh, becoming collateral damage in the middle to assert their own interests. 
Yeah. And leaks are never by accident. So this just might be a way to kind of poll for public opinion on this thing. I mean, the deal on the table, as reported by um, the, I think it was the uh, Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal was, is that Meng, Meng Wanzhou would have to admit to some degree of wrongdoing um, because the charges she faces are, are, are very serious. But, you know, it would be her admitting wrongdoing, and then they'll pursue either a fine against Huawei, which is never a small thing. Those fines are usually enormous. But I'm not so sure, you know, she needs to do that. I mean, she's living in mansions. Uh, and the longer she holds out, the better chances are that they'll drop the charges against her anyway, no? It's, it would be a curious application of deferred prosecution agreements because those are usually directed towards entities rather yeah. than individual persons per se. They can include persons who work for those entities, but the deal is usually with the entity. Now, the question is also why deferred prosecution agreement and why now? Of course, we're a little bit into uh, the arguments now by the lawyers on both sides, the, the defense and the prosecution. So there's a better reading of the tea leaves of how likely this case is going to go one way or the other, but it might also be an indication, for instance, of a, of a, of a changed landscape uh, in the United States. So you would want Meng Wanzhou, if you think you can glean intelligence from her, uh, that you wouldn't be able to gain otherwise, for instance, about financial transactions. In the meantime, the United States might have been able to glean that intelligence uh, by other means, or perhaps it was quietly provided by third parties uh, in return for precisely this type of deal with, uh, with Meng Wanzhou. So the United States might have achieved what it was looking to achieve. And so now it's simply trying to deter Huawei and Meng Wanzhou from engaging in bad behavior in the future. And that's really the value of a deferred prosecution agreement, because, of course, it would bind the company that engages in it towards mm -hmm. certain types of behavior and certain types of conditions, which, if breached, they would be subject then to U.S. Uh, to, to US sanction and prosecution. Right. And and other big companies that have found themselves with deferred prosecutions, you had the HSBC case that got into trouble for violating uh, rules with Iran. They had to pay uh, $1.9 billion. Goldman Sachs uh, got, you know, had a fine and a deferred prosecution. They paid $5 billion for a money scheme coming out of the Middle East. Uh, bottom line is, and it's not even, I think, about the money for China, it's that they don't they don't want to admit they've done anything wrong. So there's nothing really in this for them to admit they've done something wrong if it's going to, you know, interfere possibly with with Huawei, you know, moving its technology further into our, our you know, our countries. Yeah, there's two dimensions to this. One is to constrain the company's ability to behave like this in the future um, by subjecting it uh, to uh, to serious consequences, at least within your jurisdiction or possibly also allied jurisdictions. Uh, mm -hmm. So it does give the United States some interesting leverage. So it might be a look towards the future um, and influencing that behavior. The other is what we learned uh, in the early 2000s from the prosecution of, I believe it was Credit Suisse. Uh, you'll remember the case of mm -hmm. Swiss banks holding uh, bank accounts by a Holocaust victim and then uh, not handing over money and not disclosing those accounts. Um, and in that case, seven of the most senior accountants in those banks were sanctioned. And what it meant, they had to hand in their professional credentials and couldn't practice for seven years. And so it was a serious deterrent for other accountant, accountants to engage in this type of behavior. And so what they might also be after is for Meng Wanzhou and possibly associates to forego the opportunity to, to return to Huawei, work for Huawei uh, as a deterrent to other individuals in China who might be engaging in this type of behavior to say, we're going to cost you your livelihood um, yeah. if you engage in this sort of behavior. Yeah. And, and to, to, you know, 
you know, kind of put a fine point on just how far China will will go to not admit um, blame for anything they do. I mean, I mean, they've been working overtime, recrafting and retooling the narrative on this, um, you know, this virus. I mean, there was a New York Times spread this weekend talking about uh, they're they're playing the blame game. So it's it, it they've totally scrubbed any criticism of their own country, and they've totally changed the narrative, blaming everybody else for this virus other than themselves. They 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 are. They don't care. They also have to strike a balance. I mean, Huawei has, its business has been seriously imperiled. The combination of the sanctions, the attention that Huawei has drawn on 5G, and the attention that the Meng Wanzhou case has drawn has had serious repercussions for Huawei business uh, internationally, and in particular in the lucrative markets. That is to say, the, the large Western uh, economies where Huawei, of course, had hoped to make inroads. Um, and so this might also be a balance between Huawei and the government in terms of keeping not just the company, um, of of trying to make the company viable and removing some of the toxic image so that Huawei can at least continue to compete uh, effectively um, in some markets with regards to some of the technology rather than the continued harm that this public conversation has been uh, been doing to its ability uh, to to compete um, and undermining its sort of its its really its its moral credentials and its ethical uh, ethical credentials uh, as a uh, as, as a viable and uh, and respectable player it's come under uh, attack for uh, from from the government security uh, headquarters GCHQ in the in the United Kingdom for the quality of its equipment and its routers it's under serious duress and so the government might be the Chinese government might be looking to strike a balance here yeah and they're always in it for the long game and that's, of course, to remember here that the long game here is that uh, the Chinese the data since 2018 is the most valuable commodity in the world. And the Chinese, though, whoever controls the networks and the data in the 21st century is going to control the 21st century. Um, and so we need to make sure that if there is a deal to be cut, uh, that deal isn't uh, just a deal that ends up uh, uh, ends up somehow resolving this particular battle, but that it makes sure it doesn't sort of set us up for still losing the war against China if you want, in the technology field, and it sets us up for sustainability and success. And that might be much more difficult. This is why I'm thinking that this type of deal uh, might perhaps be not quite as close in the future as people might think. And this might be just another attempt uh, by those voices who would like to have seen sort of a quasi-hostage exchange uh, by, by uh, trying to, uh, to find some way to release um, the two Michaels imprisoned uh, in China in exchange for Meng Wanzhou, that this is just another narrative being put out there. Uh, to try to uh, uh, to to try to force a deal that is perhaps not really in the broader interest uh, uh, of Canada, its allies, or the United States. Oh, the price those two men are paying for our country's uh, you know soft uh, approach to China is just um, it's just disgraceful. Christian, always appreciate your time on this. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Christian Luprecht joining us here. So we'll keep an eye on that. But like you said, they play the long game, so it probably won't happen before Christmas. I want to assure Canadians that any vaccine approved in Canada will be safe and effective. The regulatory process is ongoing and experts are working around the clock. They will uphold Canada's globally recognized gold standard for medical approvals. 
All right. So this has been a very busy news kind of day uh, because, of course, the big headline is about the vaccines. The vaccines are coming at some point. But I think, you know, as excited as some are, there's still a lot of concern. And, and it's not just coming from the anti-vaxxer crowd. Even those who support vaccines have questions. I'm I'm going to definitely roll up my sleeve. But, you know, I certainly question the speed in which the vaccines have been created. And I think it's a totally justifiable thing for people to have questions, especially given the one that's first out of the gate um, has been made using a new technology. Even those tasked with doing the rollout are still trying to figure out, like, how are we going to get this from Pfizer into people's arms? And look, I'm personally more com- you know, comfortable with the one that's coming out of Oxford or the UK with AstraZeneca because it's been made the good old fashioned way in a Petri dish. And, you know, there's the one that we're getting is made with a brand new technology. So I think the more information the experts can get out on these vaccines, the better the buy-in will be for Canadians. Let me bring Dr. Lauren Small into the conversation. He is the medical director of infection prevention and control vaccine hesitancy. Good to have you, doctor. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Surprise of all surprise, we get news today that a handful, a sprinkling of these vaccines will come out. And I'm sure there's, you know, timing is is not ever, um, you know, in in question when it comes to politics. But there's still a lot of unknowns about the Pfizer vaccine, as well as the Moderna. But the vaccine that we're going to be getting first is made with something that is not known to people. So there's lots of people questioning it. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a, a, a newer technique um, that um, hasn't traditionally been used for vaccines, but it essentially, it goes back uh, to the more traditional way vaccines work, but uh, it basically just skips a step uh, in, in the way they actually function in the body um, and actually is probably more efficient. Um, and it's just that the fact that we have newer technologies uh, to make these what we call the mRNA vaccines uh, that make it possible. Uh, But the way they actually um, create the immune response in the body uh, is still similar to uh, to the traditional vaccines. Right. So what what is the the little step that they skip? Is it the testing in mice? Is it the physical mixing in the Petri dish? Like what is it that it doesn't do that? Let's say the Oxford AstraZeneca will do. Right. So, 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 so basically, in, in the traditional vaccines, um, you're, you're basically, the, the, the AstraZeneca one is actually what we call a vector vaccine. So they're actually getting another virus uh, to inject, being injected into you uh, to actually go and do the work uh, and cause your own cells uh, to create proteins that your body can respond to uh, immunologically and create an immune response. Um, so that's the step that's skipped uh, with the, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, where they're not using uh, another virus to get it mm-hmm. into your body. They are actually taking the genetic material, and they're putting that genetic material directly uh, into your muscle cells, and then your muscle cells will begin making those proteins. So it's essentially the same thing, but we're just not using another virus to actually get it into your cells. So, but the actual process of creating it, it's still a, what we call a recombinant vaccine where it's, it's made in the lab. And so in actually producing it, um, the steps are not skipped. It's just the way the immune response comes about, there's one step that is skipped. 
Okay, well, that makes me feel a bit better. But you know, the, the thing is, we really only have, um, you know, a very limited amount of data, like, how long is it going to last? Uh, is it going to get rid of this pandemic? There's still lots of things we don't know about these vaccines, because, I mean, to have them made in a year is unbelievable. Um, you know, if you told me a year, well, if you told me a year ago, we'd be in this thing at all, I would have, I would have thought you were nuts. But the fact is, they've made a vaccine in, in pretty much a year of this nightmare. And and so there's a lot of questions about, like, do we have enough data and research, you know, to be putting this in our body? Yeah, I mean, I think I think everybody's heard about, you know, the phases uh, of, of trials because we, you know, everybody's watching what phase we're at. And everybody knows that when we reach phase three, um, that, you know, we're getting close to, to the actual release and production phase. And so all these vaccines are, are in phase three and and ready for evaluation here by Health Canada. Um, and, but, you know, throughout all these phases, um, the safety of the vaccine is always part of these phases. Mm -hmm. Um, and so phase three, we like to look at, you know, the, the efficacy, but it's still a big part of it is, is the safety. So all the way through each phase, they are looking at the safety of it. And, and I, I think it's, it's reasonable based on what we know that, um, there has been a lot of safety uh, evaluation of this, and, and it does seem like it is quite safe. I mean, I talked to lots of doctors, and certainly, uh, you know, I've asked Dr. Jacobs many times, you have any hesitation? I do whatever Dr. Jacobs does. Uh, and he's like, no, I'll, I'll get it right away. Uh, look, I'll get it right away. I don't have questions. But there are a lot of people, even though they're not anti-vaxxers, who are saying, I don't know, I think I want to wait and see. Where are you on this? So, you know, as a, as a frontline healthcare worker, I mean, they just announced today um, who would, you know, probably be getting them first and frontline healthcare workers yeah. will be amongst those that are getting them first. And, uh, you know, I'll be first in line. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Well, you might have to bump a few uh, people out of the way because you didn't get that much. Uh, but nonetheless, yes, not too many people in medical uh in the medical field are, are too concerned about this. But, you know, the key to efficacy with this one, and certainly this one's the most challenging of all of them because you have to store it in such a way, is, is it has to be a double dose. It has to be 21 days. And that is an enormous feat, especially in this country, of making sure people, you got to come back. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think what you'll find as, as this goes forward um, and, and more information comes out, you know, about refrigeration uh, and about the dosing, as it progresses, we'll get more information about the dosing and, and there's going to be more information about the stability in ref of re refrigeration because we know the Pfizer one requires uh, a very low temperature and the Moderna one requires a low temperature but not as low as Pfizer. But I think that's just how uh, they studied it. And I mm -hmm. think as we go on and this starts rolling out, we're going to start getting more information about that. And I think you'll, you'll find that the dosing regimens and, and, and the distribution and refrigeration recommendations are going to change as we go. I mean, I, I mean, we'll hear, I mean, the people who get it first will become just incredibly, um, you know, everyone will be focusing on these people. You know, what was it like? What happened? And if anything goes wrong, then that becomes a whole other issue. And I mean, we've spoken with one fellow who was part of the um, uh, trials for this, and he explained how his arm felt after he kind of felt fluish. It was very cold, his body. It was interesting hearing what he went through. Um, but it is, it's, 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 there's a very fine line of information versus misinformation, which will get the buy-in or the buy-out. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, any any vaccine and any medication uh, has some potential for for side effects, um, and and there are side effects that are expected. Um, and, and usually they're very minor side effects, you know, minor mm-hmm. flu-like symptoms, uh, low-grade temperature, things like that. Um, but, you know, the, the, the kind of higher-level uh, side effects, uh, those are monitored by Health Canada, um, and, and those have to be reported yeah. uh, if there are any serious concerns. Uh, and, and, you know, with the Phase three trials, they, you know, they went through all of that, uh, and there really weren't any. But if you know, going forward over as this rolls out, if there are any, then that those will definitely be reported to Health Canada. And all over the media. Just quickly before I let you go, once we get vaccinated, I mean, is COVID done? Are we done with this thing? So, you know, the, uh, this, you know, you keep saying this is a new vaccine and, and um, you know, we don't have all the information yet for the long-term immunity. And, um even with the natural immunity from natural infection, we don't actually know how long that immunity lasts. And mm-hmm. with the vaccination, we don't know how long that immunity lasts. We think at this point it's at least three months, but, mm-hmm. we, but we don't know. Um, and so that's one, one issue. And then the other issue is you need a critical mass of people yeah. to actually be immune to actually make this go away. Uh, and even if you reach that critical mass, you're still looking at months uh, of the infection being active in the community. So if yeah. you actually are able to reach that community, that, that critical mass of immunity and people getting the vaccination, you're still probably looking at community activity up to a year. Um, so we're, we're not out of this yet. All right. I'm sad. Okay. <laughs> All right, doctor, I appreciate your time on this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Dr. Lauren Small will have him on again because he's, he knows all about this stuff. And by the way, given my age and my health, I, I'm probably going to get the AstraZeneca because I'll be last of the line, but I'm okay with that because uh, uh, the older and the uh, vulnerable people as well as medical people do need this before us. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, starting sharp 6.30 each night. Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.